Good morning, HDC. Welcome today. Uh, we have uh, a sermon from the book of Genesis. If you have your Bibles, open up with me to Genesis chapter 25. We are calling this sermon series Reconciled. For Satan is the great divider. He's incredible at dividing. That's what he does. That's what he wants to do. He wants to divide you from the people who love you. And most importantly, he wants to divide you from the God who will save you and created you. And that's Satan's plan. His plans divide you from your friends, the people in your family, from your coworkers, from your employer, from your church. Satan wants to divide you from all of it if he can. And none more than he wants to divide you from than the Lord Jesus Christ. And Satan divides, but Jesus reconciles. And so we're going to be reading the story of Jacob and Esau. I'm really excited. It's the first time I've ever preached through the story of Jacob and Esau. And we're going to look at what God does in their lives to bring reconciliation where Satan has brought division. And as you look at our lives and the division we have, there's often no greater and deeper division than the ones that are in our own families. And everybody's families are different, but if you look at your family, your extended family, you know, Satan doesn't have a very, very large playbook. He does the same five or six things over and over and over. And if we got together and talk about it, we'd see that. And in every family, you'll have people who want to follow the Lord and people who want to be on the throne of their own life going the wrong way, and it'll cause division. In every family, you'll have somewhere in the family, whether it's in your family, maybe it's you or your extended family, you'll have the kid who's trying to do everything right to gain the approval of their parents, the support of their parents, which has just never been offered to them. I know people who are elderly, whose parents have been gone for, for decades, who still wake up crying because they were never able to get the support and approval of their parents. You'll have the kid who's trying to do everything right to please their parents, and then somewhere else in the family, you'll have the parents who are trying to do everything they can to get the kid to do something right. And the kid just won't care, and the parents are just waiting to offer that guidance, that support, and the child will not listen. In every family, you'll have the host or the gatherer who's always trying to build the family up and create the community, and you'll have the person who's so self-centered, self-focused that they can barely even bring themselves to show up, let alone join in building the family up with the others. In every family, you'll have siblings who are close to each other, and you'll have brothers that won't speak. You'll have people who have spent a lifetime trying to achieve success, and you'll have others who have spent a lifetime following their addictions. And every family has similar problems. Does that describe yours? And we have powerful testimonies of God's influence in our lives and our families when we follow the Lord and when we don't, when we follow Satan, it's well apparent because you can see the division. And you can see the testimony of what Satan has done. And family is the best thing in life, but so often it can feel like the worst. And why can family be so difficult? Why is it the people that we love the most are the ones that we have the most conflict with? Well, it's because we are sinners, and Satan gets into our families. In this sermon series, we're going to take a look, and if you're discouraged because there's division in your family, the good news is that Satan's a, an excellent divider, but Jesus is an even better reconciler, and so there's always hope when we turn our eyes to the Lord. And today we're going to look at the hope that we have in Jesus as he totally changes this incredibly divisive family, totally changes them and their lives as they turn to him. And so let's begin reading from 
Genesis chapter 25, verse 19, it says, These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And the greatest story ever told, you know, I just, movies, I just can't even, they're all the same. They're all ripping off the Bible. It's all the story of good versus evil. Some do it better and some do it worse. But what they do is they basically take the Bible, they boil it down to two hours, add in some explosions, make it seem more exciting, and they forget, they get us to forget that we're actually living out the greatest story that's ever imaginable. The battle of good versus evil is happening right Right now in our own lives, and it's happening right now in Isaac and Jacob's family and Abraham's family, and it's happening in your family, it's happening in your life. And you can stop watching the movies, or just, you know, you don't have to stop watching movies, but I mean, you can stop trying to find entertainment in the movies and start focusing on the story that God has put before you and start living that out. And here's a story that God has put before Abraham and Isaac. At the beginning, He has created Adam and Eve, He's created them just as He wanted them. God doesn't do anything, a B-minus job on anything. He does an A-plus job. He creates the world just the way he wants it, creates Adam and Eve just the way he wants them, and he creates them with the knowledge of him. And he gives them the opportunity to know something else. If they want to, they can rebel against him. They can reject him. They can know not only him, but they can know good and evil. And Adam and Eve say, I want that. And so they go off on this path of following evil. And pretty soon they have rejected the Lord. It's caused a separation. Satan has caused division. It's caused a separation in their family. It's caused a separation between them and God. And God has got a plan to restore them. And it's gotten so bad that very quickly by Genesis chapter 6, the Lord looks down and sees that they are fully worthy of his act of judgment at the moment. They've fully rejected him. Humanity has. They don't know him at all anymore. They've chosen to know both good and evil, and they have forgotten the good. And so the Lord decides he's not going to just scrap the whole thing. He's so loving. He's going to change it all by taking a uniquely faithful person named Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to give you lots and lots of kids. I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to begin to teach you and your family about myself so that you can know me, and then you can spread that knowledge of me to the world. And so the Lord does. And eventually from that family comes Jesus Christ. God teaches them about who he is. Then God tells them when he's going to come. And then he comes and saves us on the cross. He dies for our sins and he rises from the grave to bring us back so we can be reconciled with the God who created us. And that same power, that same gospel power, not only reconciles, reconciles us to the Lord, it reconciles us to each other as well. So that's the story before Abraham and Isaac. That's where they're going. And here it says, Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah conceived. That's very interesting that God has promised Abraham a bunch of children. And he's, as we're going to read, he's also promised Isaac a bunch of children. He's going to make of them a great nation. And God didn't make this promise and then find out that they were having struggles in infertility afterwards. It's like God came up with this plan. He says, you know what, Abraham, you're a nuclear faithful person. I'm going to make of you a great nation. And then also they can't have kids. And God's like, oh, man, what are the odds? Oh, what's plan B? Well, God knows. He knows both Abraham and Sarah were going to struggle with infertility before they ever were born, before he ever created the world. And he knew that Isaac and Rebekah were going to struggle with that too. And yet he made the promise to them that they would have many children. God makes the promise to them knowing beforehand that they were infertile. The power of God in our life is that God won't let anything that Satan can do to us 
stop his purpose for our life when we put our faith and trust in him. And infertility is a fascinating thing that God works through. How many people couldn't conceive and then they adopt and immediately after they adopt, they have a kid. I don't know how many people in my life who've had that story happen. It's incredible. Satan has done something and God is going to use it for his glory. I, I remember going to a wedding and nobody talks about this when you're younger. Nobody talks about the infertility when you're younger. It's a kind of a private topic. Nobody talks about the miscarriages. Talking with my parents about my grandparents, I forget which grandparent it was, but they had a little graveyard behind the barn for all of the kids that didn't make it. I remember going to a wedding of one of our friends, and she was very young, and dad was very, very old. And I was talking with her father in the, in the foyer before the wedding, and it was kind of one of the things that, like, oh, hello, you must be a grandfather. Oh, no, you're the father. Oh, wow, okay, cool. I'm talking with him, and he's like, yeah, this is, she was our miracle baby. We had eight miscarriages before we got her. And infertility is, is a fascinating struggle. It's a difficult struggle. And God works through it. And if you're praying for children, let us know. I'd love to pray with you. We have uh, two friends that are just great people, great women. And they wanted to be teachers. And they went to school to be teachers. One found a great husband. The other didn't. The one who found a husband miscarried and miscarried and miscarried and finally said, I don't think this is good for me anymore. I'm going to stop and give up this dream. And the other one couldn't find a husband and she's childless. And while God has not answered their prayers, when we put our faith in the Lord, his power is that he's not going to stop anything that Satan can do from bringing us to the purpose that he has for our life. It's no coincidence that these women wanted to be teachers. They ended up not having children of our own and that is something to grieve. When we follow the Lord and put our faith in him, it's not like we won't have things to grieve but we will be victorious rather than victims. Rather than having our life be about what Satan wants for us and it does in our lives, instead our lives can be what God has done for us and what God has done through us in our lives. And while these women have not been able to have children of their own, and that is something to grieve, they've been able to raise more children than any mother ever could. Praise the Lord, and that is their story. The Lord is powerful enough to fully trust with your life. No matter what blessings God gives, he's got your ultimate good in mind. And God is not a God who says no. God is a God who says yes to something better and more important for you. And as we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we won't be victims. We will have victory. And if I can pray for you in any way, please let me know. We've got a prayer team that prays as well. You can always write your prayer down and you can put it, there's prayer cards in the seats. You can always write it down on one of those prayer cards and put it in the offering basket in the back. By the way, I haven't mentioned this in months and I kind of like that we do it this way, uh, but we don't collect an offering. However, if you do want to give, you can do that after the service in one of those boxes as well. You can put your prayer or your gift to the Lord in there and worship him that way also. And if we can... 
If we can pray for you in any way, let us know. And so here, Isaac prays for Rebekah because she is barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Praise the Lord. What an answer to a prayer. I like to oftentimes preach to those of us who have not had our prayers answered because I feel those of us who haven't had our prayers answered need the most ministry. We're sitting there, Satan's usually in our head saying God doesn't love us because he hasn't given us this. But usually he's just taking our focus off of the purpose that God does have in our life. Yes, God has said no to this, but he's not a God who says no. He's a God who says yes to something else, something greater. And so I love preaching to people who have not heard their prayers answered because I think they need encouragement. I think they need to have their focus redirected. However, we should not stop and talk about how prayer isn't effective and God doesn't answer prayer. And so here we have to have this focus about, okay, when he doesn't answer our prayer, God is a God who answers prayer. And the Lord can answer your prayer. I had a prayer answered. I've got an irregular heartbeat. I shared this before, I'm just going to share it again. We've had a variety of prayers answered in our church. I've had an irregular heartbeat. I haven't prayed for it in forever because I just got used to living with it. It was so bad I couldn't sleep. And so I went to the doctor. I got medication. It slowed it down. And it was great. I went to a prayer thing at the International House of Prayer at IHOP. People who are bold and willing to step out and pray for you in public and do that crazy things, they're oftentimes a little crazy. And so when you go to IHOP, you can experience some crazy things. But you're also going to experience some godly things that the people who are conserved you know, and reserved are not going to step forward and do. And I went to IHOP, and we prayed, and I stepped forward, and I prayed for my heart. The guy who prayed for me said, oh, I had an irregular heartbeat, and the Lord healed me from that. And he prayed for me. I had this faith that I've never had before about any sort of physical ailment in my life. I had faith that God was going to answer the prayer. And I can't do that on my own. I can't sit at home and say, try to believe more, try to believe more. That doesn't work. It's a gift from God. He gave me the faith that he's going to heal me. I stopped taking the medication and it's not fully healed. But my heart beats slower and softer than it has in 14 years. And it's great. I sleep better than I have in 14 years. Why didn't he heal me all the way? The skeptic will ask. I don't know, but God never healed anybody all the way. Every person that he healed still had an earthly body, which then went to the dust as they died. And so we're still waiting for a full healing. I don't know why God answers prayer the way he does, but I'm very thankful for the answered prayer in my life. It's very nice to sleep well at night. And the Lord answers our prayers. And he can and will answer yours. No matter what the answer is, it'll be according to his purpose. He's a God who says yes to what's best for us. And Rebecca has twins. The children, says uh, Rebecca conceived, the children struggled within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? Now, if you got a, a good Bible, it's got a little note in there. If you go to the Bible, it says, why do I live? You know, language is complicated. The Bible wasn't written in English. It was written, this part was written in Hebrew. And a lot of times in languages and things, they mean multiple things. There's multiple things that a saying or an idiom, a phrase will mean. And so here what she said isn't just, why is this happening? No, she's despairing. It's the Hebrew, it means, why do I live? It has a questioning element too, like why, but it's also a despair. Like if this is the way it is, then I don't want to live. God, why is this the way it is? And here Isaac and Rebecca have probably prayed for a long time for children. He's 40. I know I'm 40. Time's running out. 
We were trying to conceive. We had to pray. I was like, I don't want to be 80 when the kid graduates high school. I want to play with my kids. I want to play basketball with my kids. I want to do things with my kids. Let's get this going. And here the children are struggling within her. Who knows how many times she miscarried before. And so she's despairing. God, if this is the way it is, then what's the point? What am I here for if this is the way it is? Why am I even here? If I prayed for, I prayed for this Lord, why is this happening to me? Or why is this happening again? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. And so the Lord, before she's ever conceived, lets her know these kids aren't going to die. In the womb, they're going to live. But there's going to be division in your family because of these kids. One's going to serve the other. One's going to be stronger. I'm not talking about physically stronger. It's talking about following God. One is going to follow God and one is not going to. And it's going to cause division. God isn't going to cause a division. The division is caused by the free choice of the kids. God's going to give these kids a choice. Love is not possible without a choice. That's why God gives us the choices he does. All of human history is a love story between God and us. And everything God does and everything God allows is to try to win your love to him because he loves you. Everything that God allows, he intends to drive you closer to him through it. And yet he gives us that choice. And he honors and respects that choice. Because if he doesn't, then that isn't love. And in this love story, one of the kids will love the Lord in return, and one of the kids won't. God knows it from before he creates the world, but he doesn't want that, and he didn't cause that. That's sin that causes that. If you look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 and 39, if you don't think that there's going to be division in your family, wake up. If you've been a parent for a while, or if you're just starting your family, if you've been a parent for a while, you know that there's going to be a division in your family. If you grew up in a family, you know there's going to be division in the family. And if you're young and you're starting out, you might think, I'm going to have a family with no division. Wake up! Satan's coming for you. You've got an enemy. That's why the Lord tells them this. It's to wake them up. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Of course Jesus came to bring peace to the earth. He's the Prince of Peace. But he's not talking about his desires. He's talking about practicality. Practically, people aren't going to love me in return. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother. Those are all family members. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Not going to separate me from the person down the street or my boss or whatever. It's going to be my own family. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Man, do I love my kids. Love my kids. If I love them more than the Lord, I'm not worthy of Jesus. If I think my kids are better than Jesus, I don't know the Lord. If you came this morning and you're not in love with the Lord, if you're in love with other things, if you came because it's something to do, you came because you like music, you came because you like friends, you came because you like the people around you, you don't know the Lord and you need to be born again. I'm glad you're here. It's great to have you. You might love the people around you. I'm sure they love you back. But you need to love the Lord. 
If you go to a football game and you cheer at a football game, but you go to church and just kind of muddle through it because you're not in love with Jesus and you're just here to make some friends, you need to know the Lord. He's better than everything. He's better than the greatest gift that God can give us in life, which is children. There's plenty of good reasons to not have children. They're not the only purpose in life. However, they may be the greatest gift that God can give, and yet he's still so much better than that. If you're struggling with infertility and you're looking for a purpose in life, look to the Lord. He's even better than the children that you're grieving that you're not having. It says, whoever loves son or daughter is worthy, is more than me, is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And the Lord lets her know that there's going to be division in her family from before the kids are ever born. And he's got a plan for that division. It's his son, Jesus. You know, we're at the stage of our pregnancy where you go in and they start giving you tests. And we've been through this a few times before and I've actually tested We shouldn't get any of these tests because they come back and they're like, your white blood cell count is this and your amniotic fluid is this. It's a little high. It's, this could lead to this and that. Oh, then the problems. You look at the problems like, oh my gosh, kid could be born this way and that way and I could die and it's going to happen and it's just unbelievable. And I've said before to say, you know, we shouldn't take these tests anymore because the stress that they cause is far more unhealthy than anything that's going on in you. We've been through this. We know we're good. But you go and they ask you a test and they ask you to take more tests. And they say, you know, would you like to check and see if there's a third chromosome in the 27th, whatever, because if it is, if it is, there's going to be trouble in your family. There's going to be trouble. If Rebecca went to a planned parenthood, they'd probably say, now, there's going to be division in your family. And we think that what you should do is you should plan a better one. Right now, we still have something to pray about. It's incredible. It's actually the, most, the reason why I'm talking about it again. It's actually the most exciting thing that I've experienced in my lifetime. It's that somebody recognized the word of the Lord and is following it. As the world has gotten more evil and more evil, out of nowhere, I didn't expect it five to eight years ago, people didn't shut up. A small group of believers did not shut up about God's love for other people. And they said that abortion's a sin and people are valuable. And that's a person in there. And it was a very small group. And they were all Christians. And look at what they've done. They got the Supreme Court, some of the most blind people on earth, to recognize the Lord's love for other people and the value that God has for other people. That's incredible. Why am I talking about this again? Because it's amazing. And it shows what a small group of people who are not going to shut up can do. You're in a battle of good and evil. Look at what they did. Look at what you could have done if you would have spoken up in your family and with your friends. And we can do that with all sorts of things. We can do that about marriage. There's something valuable about committing. There's something valuable about reconciling. There's something loving about that that you won't find anywhere else. Instead of getting divorced, it's better to reconcile. We did. You know what's better than pornography? As if you follow God's plan for your sex life and if you focus on your spouse. I find the more that I take captive my thoughts and focus on my spouse, the better my life is. Who would have thought? 
We can say that about fornication. You know, I waited for my spouse or maybe I made a mistake, but then I found the Lord and then I waited for my spouse. And that led to greater strength in my marriage than we ever would have found elsewise. It's fantastic. Would you like to follow the Lord too? We can do that about all sorts of things. We can do that about Jesus. You know, I fall in love with the Lord. I used to go to church and I used to sit there and I used to sip a cup of coffee. And I used to casually be Christian and he was the eighth most important thing in my life. But then I realized, what am I doing here? Why is Jesus, why is God the eighth most important thing in my life? Either he should be first on the list or I should just forget about it because either he's God or he's not. And I changed my life and I fell in love with the Lord and you can too. Look at what a small group of people committed to following the Lord has done. They've been changing our nation. I don't know how much is true. I don't have time to keep up with all of this. But it looks like there's already like 12 states that had a trigger law in place where abortion has now been restricted to a greater extent illegal. I don't know. I got to look into it. And then, I, you know, it's really funny. I saw a map on the news and they said, here's where abortion has been, you know, outlawed or whatever. And they had all these states. And then they had a bunch of the states where it was, you know, outlawed or in red. And then the other ones were like in pink. And they said, abortion's at risk. Abortion's at risk. There's a risk to the abortion. Forget about the risk to the baby. Abortion is way too valuable to us to let it die. We want the babies to die. Forget about the risk to them. Our valuable abortion is at risk. Talk about ungodly. Do you listen to these people talk? You wonder why the word of the Lord doesn't overcomes when we speak it? You wonder why the word of the Lord does overcome when we speak it? Because the alternative is pure evil. I mean, listen to these people talk and listen to a Christian talk. You'll become pro-life in a second. That's why people have become pro-life. As our nation has turned away to the Lord and has gone further and further down, complete insanity. Sanity is breaking out. It's making a comeback. (laughs) Praise God, because some people wouldn't shut up about it. Don't shut up about it. If you ever meet anybody who's pro-abortion, just skip the Just skip it. They know they're full of it. They know it. And just say, you know what? There's forgiveness for you through Jesus Christ. You don't have to live with that guilt and shame anymore. Just skip the argument. They might not have the pride to break down in front of you, but they will later at home because the word of the Lord wins and they know it. They're tired of living with the guilt and shame. If you've ever had an abortion, God just doesn't love the baby that you killed. God loves you and he wants to save you. And he sent his son to die on the cross for you. And you don't have to live with the guilt and shame anymore. You can be saved. And if you've ever supported abortion, if you've ever encouraged somebody to get an abortion, or if you've ever supported it generally, you don't love people like God does. And God loves you. And he wants to save you. And you can repent of that sin of not loving people like the Lord loves people. And you can turn, you can start loving people. And you can be saved and forgiven as well. The division that, God, that Satan causes, God overcomes in Jesus Christ and he wants to overcome it with you. Here Rebecca goes in. Thank God she doesn't go into a planned parenthood. The Lord said to her, there's going to be division. There's going to be problems. If you don't think there's going to be problems in your life, you don't know 
what you're in. You're in the greatest story ever told. You're in the story of the battle of good versus evil. You've got an enemy. His name is Satan. He's going to come into your family. He's going to get the weak ones to follow him. And he's going to say, do this, do that. And your friends are doing it. The world does it. And they're going to say, okay, and they're going to do it. And they're just going to cause a bunch of problems. And he's going to get the strong ones in your family. And Satan's going to come to them and he's going to get them to feel all prideful. And they're going to look at their brother, their sister, their daughter, whatever it is, and say, what's wrong with you? How come you couldn't do what I'm doing? And they're going to show no grace and they're going to cut the person out of the family. You're not going to show them love. And then the loving person, Satan's going to get in their hearts and they're going to come and be like, oh, we got to love. We got to love, 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 love. What we need to do is just love them. Let's give them some more stuff. Let's tell them we love them some more. Let's tell them it's fine. It's okay. And they're not going to love them. They're going to enable them and drive them further into that evil. Satan's coming for you. And he does the same five things over and over and over. And the Lord tells Rebecca this, not to discourage her, not so that she goes out and plans a better family. This one looks like it's going to be tough. You know, you go and they tell you the kid's got an extra chromosome. It's going to be a lot of sacrifice. It's called Down syndrome. It's going to lead to a lot of sacrifice. The people have Down syndrome kids, almost to a T, say it's the most important thing that's ever happened to us. We learn sacrifice and love like we never would have loved before. We learn joy like we would have never loved before. It's incredible. There's going to be sacrifice in this family, but God's got a plan for that. It's going to be good for them because it's going to turn those to him. He tells them that not to discourage them, not so they start a different family, but so that they're prepared. The Lord tells Rebecca so that she can prepare. And surely the word of the Lord has come to you this morning through the same story, telling you you better prepare. He tells it not to discourage us, but to encourage us. All of this can be overcame in Jesus Christ. There's cracks in the foundation of their family, just as there are in every family. It's called sin. It's not going to just be in the kids. It's going to be the parents too. The parents are going to make this thing much, much worse before it gets better. (laughs) And God says, the younger shall serve the older. That's contrary to custom. In their culture, the older would be the one who would be served by the younger. So it's going to be opposite there. And they're not trying to be unfair. It wasn't like they were unfair back then. Well, the older gets all the things and all the respect and everything because we just, we're, we're bigoted, right? We're, we're, we play for, no, it's because the older kids, it's not, life isn't fair. And the older kids have to do so much more than the younger kids. The work is not equally distributed. I know because I've got a family. And I thank God for the older kids in my family. Isaiah and Gracie are amazing. Isaiah takes the babies, puts them to bed. He loves babies. We couldn't do it without him. I don't got time to put all those kids to bed. He's got to put somebody to bed. My seven-year-old daughter has been making lunch for the whole family since she's five. She stands on a little stool at the little table. She's teeny. The pieces of bread are bigger than her head. And she stands there and she makes sandwiches for everybody. And the younger kids, I love them, but they ain't doing nothing. (laughs) And if you're one of the older ones in your family and you didn't help and you didn't step up, you should start. And if you didn't, you should go apologize to your parents and repent because they needed you and you blew it. But it's never too late. You can repent of that sin and the Lord can heal that in your family now. I thank God for my older kids. And so here, this is unusual. The younger is going to serve the older. Why? Because the younger is going to love him. And the older is not going to love him. 
Your expectations, your plans, your traditions, none of them takes precedence over God's plan to bless those who love him in your family. Nothing should take precedence, and God wants you to be on board with that. He wants her to be on board with this. There's going to be something different in your family. There's going to be division. The younger is going to be the one that's going to be served, and you need to know this because I want you on board with it. Their custom is that the oldest gets everything. God says, nothing stands in the way of what I want to do for those who love me. You get on board with it. This family has tradition. The firstborn is going to get everything. God says, no, the younger is going to get it. It's this love story between me and the younger one in your family. And I want you to get on board with that. Nothing stands in the way or should stand in the way of God's plan to bless those who love him. Verse 24, when her days, do you think the older one's going to like any of that? Do you think, how often in our families do we sit there and we, do we take the one that's sinning and we say, I'm going I'm to help them more. I'm going to give them more. I'm going to do more. I'm going to do more. And you just enable them the whole time. You try to make things equal. This kid's younger and he's producing. This kid's older and he's not. Well, you know, let's just keep funneling resources into this. No, no, that's not what the Lord says. The Lord, if you read, I forget what the passage is, but he says, you know, this one took one talent and he produced one talent. The other one took five and the Lord gave him five more. The Lord wants to bless those who love him. And as those who don't love him see that blessing, it's going to inspire them to turn and rethink their ways. The old, if you're going to follow the Lord in this family, Rebecca, there's going to be division. The younger's going to serve the older. You're going to have to be bored. It's going to make some, some kids mad. The ones who don't serve the Lord are going to be mad. You're going to have to tell them they're not serving the Lord. And if they want to receive the blessing, then they better turn and serve the Lord. When it comes time for the inheritance for our kids, I'm not dividing things equally. They don't deserve it equally. And I'm going to tell them that. If you love the Lord, he is going to bless you. And I'm going to be on board with that. And if you're not, then I'm going to withhold those blessings and pray for you. That you turn to the Lord. And that we can have reconciliation in this family. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Again, things mean things differently in different cultures. Jacob's name literally means heel snatcher, heel catcher, whatever you want to say. And you know, one of the meanest things you could do to a kid back in middle school I did this to somebody once. It was terrible. I immediately regretted it. People had done it to me a lot, and I thought it was going to be funny to do it to somebody else. Terrible idea. But, you know, you're walking behind somebody, and in the halls, you know, you're jam-packed in the prisons of the middle school, I mean the schools, and then, uh, you know, you take, you take one of the inmates in front of you, and you're, you're ticked because your, your life is... And you, you kick their heel as they're walking, and it goes in front, and they go down. I did that to somebody, and they wham, and I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> That was a terrible trick to play. Heel catcher. It's a trick. And Jacob's name literally means he comes out and he's grabbing Esau's heel. His name means trickster. His name means deceiver. And this is the one that's going to love Jesus. Isn't that incredible? He doesn't come out of the womb loving Jesus. If you read the story of Jacob, God spends Jacob's entire life trying to get him to repent of his sins of deception. The interesting thing about Jacob is he does. And loves the Lord and he's saved. Esau doesn't come out messing with Jacob. 
Esau's the one that doesn't love the Lord. He's the one going to hell. At least I assume from everything written about him in scriptures. Yet the one who loves him comes out and he's the one messing with everybody. His brother comes out holding his heel. And Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. And when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Well, that's going to help the division. <laughs> Sounds like a great way to handle it. If you look at Genesis, do you think that hurt Jacob? Are you kidding me? Do you think that hurt Jacob? Look at the extent that Jacob goes in his life. Probably much of it because he'd never got his father's approval. Part of Jacob's deception might be because he never got his father's approval. Never had dad's support. He always felt he had to go out and try to weasel people out of stuff. Genesis 37.3. Now Israel, that's Jacob. Jacob gives a different name. Just We'll call it Jacob. Genesis 37.3. Now Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his sons. Because he's the son of a lady. Jacob's dad loved his brother more. Jacob knows the pain of that. And what does Jacob do? The same thing that dad did. Where did he learn it from dad? If you're sitting there yelling at your kids and losing your patience because dad did, if you're sitting there as an alcoholic because dad did, if you're sitting, I mean, or if you're a lying manipulator because mom was, I mean, you know the pain it causes. And it, what happens? We end up doing the same things that we learned and saw. Talk about division in the family. If you don't want division to be in your family, prepare that Satan's coming for you. Recognize his playbook. Start praying against it. Do whatever you can not to repeat the sins of the past. And the sins of this family is that the fathers are playing, and the moms are playing favorites with their kids. What horrible parents. You know, my grandparents were from Sweden, and I came out and I was real blonde. And my older sister was brown-haired. Beautiful girl. You could have barely find a cuter girl in the whole world than my older sister. And yet my grandparents were from Sweden. And they liked the blonde kids. And so they liked me better. And they'd come over and they'd give me better things, nicer things. I was smaller. I was cuter, younger. And I was blonde. And so they played favorites. Caused division in our family. I'd come home. My sister would beat on me. Thanks, Grandma and Grandpa. Take the, take the gift back. You can have your football back. I don't want to get hit every day of the week. I don't want to get tripped every day of the week. My parents had to say, we're not going over there anymore. But then how often do the parents just repeat the sins that they saw? In grief group, I, I, went, I went in a grief group. The, the pain that comes when parents plays favorite lasts a whole life. I remember I was in this grief group at an elderly old folks home, and I was training under this pastor led the grief group, and he'd go around and ask them, you know, what, what is it that you're trying to get over in life? There were multiple elderly people who were so ticked off at this. They're at the end of their life. Who goes to a grief group anyway like that, right? Like, who goes to a group that learns to grieve like that unless you're just so, you know, at the end of your life, so miserable from this thing that you're desperate to get over it? And they go to a grief group and they said this. It wasn't this. It wasn't that we lost somebody we loved or, you know, whatever. It was mom and dad played favorites. Mom always loved my sister better than me. You could hear the pain in the voice of people. This is a serious thing. The other people in the grief group had lost children, lost whatever. And you get to this person, wow, that's intense pain. 
When here the parents have played favorites. One kid gets all the help, all the love, and the other has to do all the chores. One kid gets all the gifts, the other gets less. One kid gets a nickname. Hey, champ! The other kid gets a different name. What's wrong with you? And parents, we can't play favorites, and it's not easy. I've got a lot of kids. Some of them mesh better than me with others. We'll never do it perfectly. But we've got to do all we can not to play favorites because Satan's trying to get at us. We don't want our families to end up with the same kind of division that we grew up with. The first thing we've got to do is to be humble and repent. As we're looking at the division that causes in our family, we've got to be humble and repent. The Lord says there's going to be division in your family because of these boys, but the parents' sin is making it way worse. We always like to think it's somebody else. But if you want to know who's causing the problems in your family, it's almost always going to be you. You're going to be the one who's contributing to the problem. Before you think about talking to anybody else in the family about their problems, make sure that you're looking at your own problems. Lord says before you take the speck out of somebody else's eye, look at the plank in your own. How many families are made worse because the person is never willing to look at themselves and they go around and say, the Christian in the family is never willing to work on themselves and they go to everybody else and say, you know what, if you did this and if you did that and if you did this and if you did that, and what's your faith about? Is your faith about you? Is it about your sin and Jesus saving you? Or is your faith a manipulative tool so you can get the people in your family to act the way you want them to act? As Christians, the first place we should look in our family of where Satan's getting into our family is at us. We're the only ones that we can control anyway. Start with yourself. Here, Isaac and Rebecca are contributing to the problem immediately. One of them loves the boy, Esau. One of them loves Jacob. And we've got to change our behavior to match the Lord's. And what does Jacob get here when it says he gets a birthright? What does it say that he gets the older and the younger? Let's look at verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Edom sounds like the Hebrew word for red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. <laughs> That's an interesting response. What's Jacob about to get? The birthright, it's a double portion. If you look at Deuteronomy 21, 17, it talks about birthrights. The older would get a double portion for all that he did for the family, for all that he took care of. When mom and dad die, he's going to be the one responsible and in charge to continue this thing on. And so he gets more resources. He was always trusted with the younger kids before when they were little. He gets trusted with the younger kids when he's older. doesn't mean he's not going to share. It means he's just in charge and responsible for it. And so here Jacob wants it because it's been promised to him because God has, uh, knows that he will respond to him with love over than his brother and it's God's will to bless him, but Jacob knows that it's going to come to him. And what does he do? He doesn't sit back and trust in the Lord like King David does when the, king is pro the, the, the throne is promised to King David. He doesn't go out and try to manipulate and deceive and make that happen earlier than God brings it about. No, David is patient and waits and waits and waits. And you read the story and you're like, this is ridiculous. Just take the throne. But the Lord wants us to trust in him and not do things ourselves. He tells Abraham and Sarah he's going to give them a kid. Sarah can't wait. So she manipulates and deceives and comes up with a plan to try to make God do it in her time, she makes another big mistake. Jacob does the same thing. Instead of trusting the Lord, he's promised it to you. Isn't that good enough? What are you doing? You never sin to make something right. And that's why all of our leaders stink right now in our country, because every one of them has convinced themselves that to get what we want, well, I got to do something that's not so good so that we can get there. 
You never do that as a Christian. You never compromise. You trust in the Lord. If you're in a leadership position and you're sitting there and you're like, well, I, I got to lie about this so that we can get this over here and this over here is really good, so I might need to lie. No, you never do that. You always follow the Lord. They'll always cause terrible things in our lives and in our world. Here, Jacob won't trust in the Lord, so he's got a plan to go out and deceive and lie. Esau comes in, and he's hungry. And I don't think we're supposed to assume that Esau is just a complete fool. Like he just came in, and he ate, he ate at 10 o'clock, and he comes in at 2 o'clock, and he's like, all right, I'll give you it all for the, for the soup, man. I'll give you everything for the soup. No, he's probably in a really difficult situation. Who knows what it was? Maybe he was hunting. He was out for weeks on a trip, couldn't find anything. I mean, the man is exhausted. I think we take it at his word. He's in a difficult situation. I mean, it makes no sense. The story makes no sense unless you actually sit there and read it. I've read this my whole life, and I thought, Esau, I mean, it's, just it's hard for me to believe this story, that you're willing to give it all for nothing. No, he's not willing to give it all for nothing. He's in a very difficult place. I'm exhausted, like I'm near death. Now, who knows how literal that is? Maybe he was literally near death and crawling up. Maybe he's close, whatever it is. But the situation is bad enough that he literally loses his mind and sells everything he has for a bowl of soup. Imagine, I mean, talk about sin. Jacob's the one who loves the Lord and his brother comes in and needs help and his first thought is, give me all your stuff. Imagine how you'd feel if you're hungry and he came in to the kitchen and he said, hey, hey buddy, hey brother, can you make me a sandwich? Your brother said, yes, but then I get the inheritance. Well, you can tell what's on his mind. What are you talking? I was just coming in for some soup. What have you been thinking about? How many families have been divided by the kids fighting over their parents' money? Mom and dad have a plan to bless their family with all that they've earned. And the kids end up hating each other. It's not a blessing. Kids have been hating each other. How many of, that, how many of you did that happen in your families? Everybody's fighting about what to get. The Lord has already promised Jacob. He's supposed to be the believer. What's on his mind? Definitely not the things of the Lord. It's almost impossible to find somebody to like in this story. The dad's despicable. The mom's despicable. The brothers are despicable. They're all sinners. And God loves every single one of them. And has a plan to reconcile them, just like in our families. Esau's exhausted. He decides to sell all of it for inheritance. If you want to learn from this story, and you want to reconcile with people in your family, there's a simple principle you can follow. Don't swindle your family members. It's pretty easy. Don't screw them over. Here Jacob's got a plan, and he's supposed to be the one who loves the Lord. He says, said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So we swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Now Jacob knows. They both know. Maybe Esau's willing to do this too, because they both know that this is never going to hold up in court. Dad's never going to go for this. All right, Esau, it's time for your stuff. Well, Dad, I sold it for a bowl of soup. Oh, that's perfectly reasonable. Fine, here, give Jacob, here is it all for you. Now we're going to find out Jacob's got to go to further extent. He knows this isn't going to hold up. So he goes to Daddy's and says, well, it's actually mine, Dad, because I got it for a bowl of soup. No, this is ridiculous. There's going to be a lot more deception involved. Maybe they agreed because they both, Esau knows this thing isn't going to hold up in court. Jacob says, swear to me. So he swears to him. And Jacob gives Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. And thus Esau, Esau despised his birthright. Now Esau, what's so bad about Esau? We don't know all this from the story, but history tells us a lot more about Esau. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16, excuse me, verse 16, 
verse 15 and 16, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That's a pretty important thing to obtain. That's why I say that Esau went to hell because the grace of God is what brings us to heaven. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Going to six, verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. That's what he's known for. But if you look at Esau as we go through his life, he's a wild man. He's impossible to get along with. He's violent. He's, he rushes to violence. He's a pretty tough guy and all of his kids follow in his footsteps, the nation of Edom. And he reads through the scriptures and Esau is, is remembered as a really bad guy. Not just a fool, but a really bad guy. And the interesting thing is you read this story and it's not like he starts out that bad. Jacob's the one doing everything wrong. If you don't think there's a difference between unbelievers and believers, you don't understand. You might look around, and this is the lie I always grew up believing too, is that unbelievers are just like believers. They just reject Jesus. The reason why unbelievers look like believers is because we grew up in a Christian culture that was raised on Jesus Christ. So whether you believed or not, you basically had the same values and morals. But there's actually no greater difference in life than loving the Lord and not loving him. You might like look similar for a while, but you're headed in exact opposite directions, and that's Jacob and Esau. Jacob comes out, and he's the one doing everything wrong, but he's the one who's going to be willing to repent and follow the Lord. Esau comes out, and he's honestly kind of a favorable character. He's going out there hunting. He's doing whatever he can to serve and help the family, and yet he doesn't love the Lord, and he's going this way. The people who love God, they go this way. And they end up in heaven with Jesus. The people who don't love the Lord go this way. And they're going to go to hell with Satan. C.S. Lewis has got a great thing. He goes, you know, you might think you all look the same. But some of us are becoming more and more like angels every day. While others of us are becoming more and more like demons. And here Jacob and Esau, they're headed in completely opposite directions. And yet Esau is the guy at the beginning who seems to be doing things right. But he is a fool. He despises his birthright. I went to college with kids like this. I went to college with these kids. I'd go to college and say, what are you here for? Well, you know, I'm here to do computer science. My dad owns a dentistry, but I don't want to be a dentist. So I, he, I always wanted, he always wanted me to take over the dentistry, but I didn't want to. I want to do computer science. I go to the next kid and say, what are you here for? Well, my dad owns a trunking company, but I want to dance. <laughs> You're going to dance? I think you confused your, your occupation with a hobby. Your dad owns a what? A trucking company? Can you give me your dad's number? I went to my family. And I said, okay, guys, late in high school, I said, all right, let's sit down everybody at the tables, figure out what I'm going to do. Do we got any connections, any network? No? None? Okay, do we have any prospects? No? Nothing. All right, great, I guess I'm on my own. And I go to these kids and I say, what are you, what's wrong with you? Your parents built a dentistry and you don't care? That's amazing. How come you have no respect for your family and what they've done? Your dad owns a trucking company? That's fantastic. Look how important. Did you ever think truckers were as important as you did in the last year? I mean, come on. What's wrong? You don't have to do what your parents did. But show some respect. Show some respect to your parents. If you've got parents that have built anything in this life, that is special, precious, and amazing. Go home and thank them for that. That's incredible. Most people don't. My dad never got anything from his dad. My grandpa was an amazing guy. He grew up in the Depression. He found out a way to make money. He bought old junk and fixed it and resold it and scraped by. He never had anything to give his son I sat down at the table, and it turns out that all I got was the 1986 Astro van. 
But you know what else I got is my parents raised me in church. My mom took me to church. And turns out that's a greater inheritance than even a trucking company. And if you're sitting here today and your parents don't have anything to give you, but they've got you here, go home and thank them. Because they're giving you an inheritance better than anybody. And here Esau doesn't care about what his parents have built. He doesn't respect his family. If you're looking to bring reconciliation to your family, respect them for whatever they've got to give you. I sat down, I texted my dad the other day. I said, thanks, dad, for working a job that was terrible for all those years so that I could live and eat. I used to go downstairs. My dad worked uh, uh, evenings and nights. So sometimes I'd come home from school and he would not have left for work yet and be sitting there at the kitchen with the fan on, smoking a cigarette, cursing at invisible coworkers of his. I mean, the man was driven nuts by these crazy people and he did it for me. So I text him, thanks, Dan. Whatever your inheritance is, whatever your parents have worked for, show some respect. If you want to vision your family, show some respect at what they've done. And as we read this story, it's hard to find anybody, anybody who's a sympathetic character. And yet God loves these people. Loves them in their mess, loves them in their mistakes so much that he's got an amazing story that he's going to do in their family through Jesus Christ. We're going to look at the reconciliation that takes place between these brothers as they go throughout their life and as they submit themselves more and more to the Lord. 